36-year-old William Miller sat hunched over his desk, straining his eyes to read by candlelight. The Bible sat open in front of him, along with his notes and scribblings. He wrote down the current year, 1818, in the corner of his page. Then he attempted his calculations. Not having a strong background in arithmetic, William computed the numbers again and again. A timeline began to take shape, with numbers and years he lifted straight from the Bible. The book had all the answers. With a little bit of decoding, William had laid bare the entire scope of humanity's existence, man's past and his future. The Bible contained it all. God had put it there for the faithful to discover. But William's triumphant discovery came with a sobering realization. He'd uncovered a crystal clear chronology. William realized that the world as he knew it was coming to an end, not in some distant future, but within his lifetime. That left precious little time. William could try his best to save as many souls as he could, but he knew that most of humanity was edging closer and closer to their doom. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll discuss spiritual leader William Miller, who came of age at the height of a new Protestant revival movement in the early 19th century. We'll talk about William's early skepticism before his experience in the War of 1812 completely reshaped his worldview. Finally, we'll explore how his unique interpretation of the Bible led to a startling prophecy of the Second Coming. Next week, we'll talk about how William's theories inspired a movement composed of thousands of individuals. We'll also discuss how William and his followers reacted when his predicted apocalypse failed to come to pass. We'll have all this and more coming up. Stay with us. Constantly searching for meaning in a world that often seemed cold and empty to him, William Miller struggled with feelings of melancholy on and off for years. Desperate to believe his life had a purpose, he eventually found it late in life. But it was far different from anything he imagined in his youth. Born on February 15, 1782, William Miller III was the oldest of 16 children born to William Miller II, a Revolutionary War veteran, and his wife, Paulina. At the time of young William's birth, the family lived on a farm in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. It was a tumultuous time, not just because of the violence of the Revolutionary War, but because of the economic depression that set in during the conflict's final years. In the 1780s, the Massachusetts state government responded to the financial crisis by raising existing taxes and instating new ones. The government then began commandeering the property of anyone who couldn't pay their debts. Families like the Millers were just finishing up a war against the British over abusive taxes. They had no intention of letting their new government push them around, and they were perfectly willing to rebel against Massachusetts authorities. In 1782, the elder William participated in a violent attack against a law enforcement official. 
It began when he and his neighbors tried to prevent a deputy sheriff from confiscating an ox from a farmer who hadn't paid his debts. As David L. Rowe writes in his book, God's Strange Work, William Miller and the End of the World, the mob attacked the sheriff with knives and clubs. They successfully drove the sheriff away, but William ultimately paid the price. Authorities later arrested him for the crime and sentenced him to pay a 40-shilling fine. The following year, he faced arrest a second time for participating in a riot. The second arrest came with a larger sum of 20 pounds. The penalty proved difficult for a family hardly making ends meet. Records show that William likely had to sell off his property to pay the amount, and the experience may have had a profound effect on young William. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Research consistently shows that financial stress can negatively affect an individual's physical and mental health. A 2010 study published in the American Journal of Public Health concluded as much. The study, led by public health expert Jake M. Najman, stated that family poverty predicts higher rates of adolescent and young adult anxiety and depression. Repeated experiences of poverty over a child's early life course are associated with increased levels of poor mental health. A separate study conducted by child psychologist Gary Evans reached similar conclusions. Evans explained that poverty causes chronic stress in children, which can affect cognitive development and alter how the brain processes memories and regulates moods. Eventually, after selling their land, the Millers decided to leave the turbulence of late 18th century Massachusetts. In 1786, when the younger William was four years old, his parents moved north to less developed territory in New York, which came to be known as Low Hampton. They couldn't afford to purchase new land outright, but they leased a hundred acres near the border of Vermont. Much of William's childhood was full of labor. From an early age, he helped plow fields, harvest wheat, tap trees, and instruct his younger siblings on their farm duties. While not formally educated, his mother Paulina saw to his instruction. As the daughter of a Baptist preacher, she made sure that the Bible was a central component of William's upbringing. William seemed highly receptive to Paulina's teachings. He later said that he spent a great deal of time worrying about the welfare of his soul. He worried that he wasn't doing enough to please God, especially because he had inherited his father's rebellious streak, and he sometimes had trouble following the biblical commandment to obey his parents. While not exactly a troublemaker, William had interests other than farming. As a teenager, he became an avid reader, devouring the stories of action and adventure, like the castaway tale of Robinson Crusoe. William often stayed up late into the night to finish these books, reading by the light of the living room fireplace. His leisure activity became a source of tension between William and his parents. They wanted to make sure he got a good night's sleep, so he could be up early for his chores. His father eventually banned him from reading at night, giving William a strict bedtime. William wouldn't stand for it. He simply ignored his father's rule, even when his father threatened to horsewhip him after he refused to go to bed. The older William, apparently flummoxed at his son's defiance, eventually gave in. His parents realized he was becoming a young man with a mind of his own. 
Once they came to terms with this, they stopped discouraging him, and instead decided to build an addition to their house so that the younger William could have a room of his own. There, he read by candlelight for as long as he wanted, in the privacy of his own space, without bothering his many younger siblings. William also dabbled in writing. He became known for his eloquence on the page, and he impressed his friends with his excellent communication skills. When they wanted their letters to sound extra fancy, they brought them to William so he could improve them. Along with crafting letters and poetry, William also wrote regularly in his diary. By the time he turned 19, his entries revealed his burgeoning interest in women, and one in particular, Lucy Smith. Lucy lived just across the state border in the town of Poultney, Vermont. William didn't record how they met. However, once they were acquainted, they seemed to see a lot of each other, despite living several miles apart. Beginning in 1801, William sprinkled his diary with references to their regular meetings. He visited her in Poultney, and she came to him in Lowhampton. Eventually, his diary entries became more infrequent. William didn't have as much time to write. He had Lucy to occupy his attention. In 1803, 21-year-old William wrote that he and Lucy were engaged to be married, after which he stopped writing in his diary altogether. It appeared as if he was symbolically closing a chapter of his life. As soon as the couple wed, William moved away from Lowhampton, apparently eager to leave his old world behind. Over the next few years, there are no records of William ever returning home, even for a visit. He moved to Poultney, near Lucy's family, and fully embraced his new role as a husband. Within two years, they welcomed a son, also named William, and they went on to have nine more children. But William's journey from childhood to adulthood wasn't the only significant shift in his world. He didn't yet know it, but William had set out on a path to a spiritual conversion that would shape the rest of his life. Up next, William finds success, but loses faith. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters, it's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In 1803, 21-year-old William Miller left his childhood home in Lowhampton, New York, to begin a new life in Poultney, Vermont. 
he married a Pulteney woman named Lucy Smith and developed a close relationship with her family. Choosing to spend most of his time with Lucy's family rather than his own appeared to be a conscious choice for William. He seemed almost embarrassed by what he called his less cultivated family at Lowhampton. Pulteney wasn't a large town, but William had access to many more books and libraries there. He also met several worldly individuals who exposed him to a wider school of thought than he had encountered back home. Shortly after moving to Pulteney, William joined a Masonic lodge and rose through the ranks to become a Grand Master. Like his father, William made a living as a farmer and seemed fairly successful at it. However, he gravitated toward the more educated professional class. He soon befriended local politicians and intellectuals. In his new social circle, the works of philosophers like Voltaire, Hume, and Thomas Paine were in fashion. The Bible was not. Not long after moving to Pulteney, William rejected his Baptist upbringing and decided to become a deist. Deism gained popularity during the Age of Enlightenment in 18th century France and England. It typically taught that after God created the universe, he stopped intervening in human affairs and remained an objective observer. Many deists also believed that human beings weren't lost without God's constant guidance because he gifted humans with a moral conscience guided by rationality. This inner voice gave people innate knowledge of right and wrong. By following it, deists thought that they were fulfilling God's will. Deism, therefore, preached that all humans had a natural inclination to be good. William liked that deism seemed to be rooted in rationality and objectivity. It rejected the supernatural and avoided any theological concepts that weren't based on evidence. Deism embraced only principles that could be derived from reason. At that time, William had trouble finding anything reasonable about traditional Christianity. His biggest problem with Christianity stemmed from the Bible, the book he'd been raised to revere. Reading it now as an adult, he found it full of contradictions and inconsistencies. Much later, when he looked back on this period of his life, he recalled thinking that the book was a work of designing men whose object was to enslave the mind of man. Worse, William thought that the Bible presented a warped view of God. He felt that scripture was so convoluted and shrouded in mysticism that any person couldn't possibly understand God's will. Yet the Bible taught that God would punish anyone who disobeyed these inscrutable rules. William asked, how can such a being be called either wise or good? Beyond his skepticism of the Bible, embracing deism made practical sense for William. Many politicians, including several founding fathers, were adherents. The Pulteney elite gravitated toward it. After spending time rubbing elbows with these distinguished citizens, William began to develop political ambitions of his own. So it seemed like a good idea to emulate those esteemed men as William rose to prominence in Pulteney. William spent the next decade making a name for himself. After becoming particularly interested in leadership, William sought out roles that placed him in a position of authority. Within a few years, he accepted an appointment to town constable and later county sheriff. Then in 1810, 28-year-old William accepted a commission as lieutenant in the Vermont militia. A little over two years later, after the War of 1812 broke out between the United States and England, William accepted a transfer from the Vermont militia to the United States Army. Initially tasked with leading local recruitment efforts, William found the assignment somewhat boring. He wanted to see some real action. 
he requested a transfer, and in August of 1814, 32-year-old William's commanding officers put him in charge of an infantry company in Plattsburgh, New York. Within a month, he found excitement. In September, British ships launched an attack in Plattsburgh, leading to an hours-long battle. Despite being outnumbered, the Americans won, and the British retreated north to Canada. William found himself in the middle of a thrilling scene, like something out of the adventure stories he used to read as a teenager. Though he described the battle to his wife, Lucy, as dreadful, he told a different story in a letter to a friend, saying, My God, the sight was majestic. It was noble. It was grand. I am satisfied that I can fight. I know I am no coward. Fighting for his country seemed to give William a sense of fulfillment he'd been searching for his whole life. But unfortunately, it didn't last. Once the adrenaline rush wore off, William fell into a depression. He missed his wife, Lucy, and lamented that she hardly wrote to him. He even sent a letter sarcastically musing that her silence must have meant that she died. He asked, Have you departed this life? Are you gone to the world of spirits? Or are you so engaged that you could not devote one hour in a week to your humble servant? It may be that Lucy wasn't comfortable drafting letters. She wasn't as practiced a writer as William. Or she may have been busy at home raising their large family on her own. Whatever the case, months often stretched between their communications. William had few comforts and long hours to mull over the violence and death that surrounded him. Thoughts of mortality greatly disturbed him. As a child, he consoled himself with his belief in heaven. However, his embrace of deism had deflated that comfort. William wrote to Lucy about these fears, saying, Could I be sure of one other life, there would be nothing terrifying. But to go out like an extinguished taper, the thought is doleful. This wasn't his only crisis of faith. William gravitated toward deism because of its basis in reason and the idea that human beings are essentially good. But the more William saw of human nature during the war, the less he believed that. He developed the view that most people were utterly corrupt at heart. He wrote, I began to think man was no more than a brute. By the final year of the war, William seemed nostalgic for a simpler time. Beleaguered thoughts of his youth, his parents, and his family in Lowhampton bounced around William's mind. With modern context, it seems like William may have experienced symptoms of PTSD. As early as the 17th century, Swiss doctor Johannes Hofer observed a phenomenon in Swiss soldiers who seemed to suffer from intense homesickness. They also experienced anxiety, sleeplessness, loss of appetite, and in more serious cases, suicidal ideation. While Hofer coined the term nostalgia, he wasn't the only doctor who noticed this in military servicemen. Several researchers in other countries, including Spain, France, and England, around the same period noted the affliction. Edgar Jones, a history of medicine and psychiatry professor at King's College London, is one of many experts who now recognize that soldiers likely suffered from the post-combat disorder. In a 2006 paper, Dr. Jones wrote that by 1800, nostalgia had become a recognized hazard of troops on campaign and was increasingly categorized as a form of melancholy. Whatever caused William's feelings of nostalgia, it left him languishing with guilt. In his early 20s, he had shown disdain for his less cultivated family. Now, a decade later, he regretted his uncharitable appraisal of them. 
William's father died of typhus at the beginning of the war, and only his mother, Paulina, remained. William still had time to reconcile with her, and as he contemplated what his life would be like after the war, William realized he had no desire to return to his esteemed position in Pulteney. William wrote Paulina a letter suggesting he should move his family back to his childhood home in Lowhampton. He wanted to be close to his mother because William no longer trusted himself or his wife Lucy to properly raise their children. Thoughts of confusion and doubt tormented him. He didn't mention religion in his letter, but perhaps he felt heartache at the loss of his childhood faith. It hadn't always made sense to him, but at least it assured him that life had meaning. He wondered if he had been led astray by his worldly friends, and he didn't want his children to suffer the same fate. While still in the service, William purchased the land his family had been leasing for decades, as well as the parcel of land next to it. When the war ended in 1815, William settled his family in Lowhampton. But retreating to his childhood home didn't actually bring William contentment. He still didn't understand the world or his purpose in it. He knew there must be more. After moving to Lowhampton, he began making regular appearances at the local Baptist church. One Sunday around September of 1816, the regular preacher couldn't make the service. 34-year-old William was called upon to read a sermon to the crowd. As he spoke, William reportedly felt overwhelmed. The lesson taught the congregation about honoring one's parents. William recalled that he'd often failed his own mother and father, and he thought about how, despite all his failings, the Christian God forgave him anyway, as long as he accepted Jesus into his heart. By this point, after years of depression and melancholy, William decided Jesus might provide a path to relief. A short time later, he decided to get baptized in the church. He became so dedicated to his newfound faith, he built a family altar in his own home to always feel connected to God. He later wrote of his conversion, It seemed that there might be a being so good and compassionate as to save us from suffering the penalty of sin. I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be, and imagined that I could cast myself into his arms and trust in his mercy. William wasn't the only one going through a conversion. Americans everywhere were rejecting the secularism of the Age of Enlightenment and embracing a renewed spirituality. This backlash became known as the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening also marked a turn away from the once popular Calvinist doctrine, which emphasized predestination, or the idea that God alone decided whether one received salvation. Predestination didn't fit in with America's post-revolutionary war spirit. Fresh off the victory of establishing a new country, Americans didn't want their fate predetermined, even by God. They wanted to make their own destiny. They embraced religious philosophies that allowed them to take their spirituality into their hands. Between the late 18th and mid-19th century, evangelical Christian denominations such as Methodists and Baptists swelled in numbers. They vastly outpaced more established denominations like Episcopalians and Congregationalists. These growing evangelical movements encouraged an intimate, personal relationship with God, emphasizing passion and emotion. They sharply rebuked the detached objectivity of deism and intellectualism. William followed the tide of the Second Great Awakening, but didn't stop being a skeptic at heart. 
In his youth, he'd nurtured an inner battle between faith and reason. At that time, reason had won out and he'd turned to deism. But in the end, deism left him feeling unsatisfied. He wanted to keep faith and reason. He needed to make them somehow compatible with each other. To make his faith reasonable, William had to find proof of a Christian God's existence. For that, he examined the only evidence available to him, the Bible. Never mind that he previously found the book to be riddled with incongruities, William figured that as God's word, there must be some way to reconcile the inconsistencies in the Bible. William felt determined to apply whatever logic necessary so that it all made sense to him. As he told a friend, I would harmonize all these apparent contradictions to my satisfaction, or I would be a deist still. After that pronouncement, William began an intense study of the Bible, analyzing every chapter, verse by verse. Though William wasn't a scholar or a theologian, he didn't let that stop him. Part of the spirit of the Second Great Awakening taught the egalitarian idea that God was for everyone to explore and understand, not just the educated elite. William's analysis of the Bible lasted for two years. By the time he finished, he had not only developed a strong conviction of God's existence, but also crafted a new slate of prophecies that roiled the Christian world for years to come. Up next, William makes a shocking prediction, forecasting the end of the world. Now back to the story. In 1818, 36-year-old William Miller emerged from two years of private Bible study with a strong faith in God. He had previously excoriated the Bible for its inconsistencies. Now, he completely reversed his view, saying, I wondered why I had not seen its beauty and glory before, and marveled that I could ever have rejected it. But William also came away with a startling realization. After scrutinizing Bible passages over and over, he believed that he had unearthed clues that pointed to the coming apocalypse. His ideas weren't really outlandish, considering the texts he'd drawn from. The Book of Revelation and the Book of Daniel are apocalyptic, so any Christian who took the Bible literally would likely agree with William that the world must eventually come to an end. But for William, this wasn't a distant eventuality. Apparently, in his deep dive into the Bible, he had come up with a unique set of logical rules, which he applied to the text. Based on these findings, William came to understand that Jesus would return to Earth on or before 1843. His calculus appeared fairly convoluted. It involved a detailed analysis of the prophecies in the book of Daniel. In one of Daniel's verses, the author describes an instance where Daniel is struck with a vision of a sanctuary being cleansed. Daniel predicted that this cleansing would occur 2300 days from the date of the vision. William believed the cleansing of the sanctuary to be a metaphor for the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. Thus, the apocalypse would occur at the end of these 2300 days. Written in the 2nd century BCE, the 2300 days after the vision in the book of Daniel had long since passed. Even so, William wasn't dissuaded from the prophecy. 
Using a definition he found in the Book of Numbers, William decided that in the Bible, the term day did not mean 24 hours. Instead, it referred to a year. Thus, the apocalypse would occur 2,300 years from the date of Daniel's vision. William then used various references from the text to settle on the date of Daniel's vision. He determined that it had occurred in the year 457 BCE. Once he decided on this date and added 2,300 years to it, it became clear the apocalypse would come to pass in the year 1843, a mere 25 years away. Being a skeptic, William didn't immediately trust his interpretation. However, the more he fleshed out the chronology laid out in Daniel's prophecies, the more he became convinced that this biblical timeline matched historical real-world events. By William's analysis, the Bible predicted the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the papacy, and even the rise of Napoleon and the French Revolutionary War, hundreds of years before they happened. Undoubtedly, William used circular logic and ex post facto reasoning to make everything fit into his plan. Still, at the time, he couldn't see that. He thought he'd put together the pieces of an elaborate puzzle. Psychologists call this way of thinking illusory pattern perception, a phenomenon that occurs because human brains are wired to notice patterns, sometimes even where none exist. Dr. Jan Willem van Proya, an associate professor in social psychology at Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam, discussed this in an interview on the Canadian science news radio show Quirks and Quarks. Dr. van Proya said, our brain's natural tendency to seek patterns gets amplified when we're fearful and feel like we don't have control over situations. We might start to see illusory patterns or connections that aren't there. William's conversion to Christianity had changed his life and his entire worldview. He'd been a skeptic for so long he seemed desperate to find something that would validate his newfound faith. The pattern he discovered in the Bible was his validation. Even so, William still had some doubts about his conclusions, and he seemed afraid people would think he'd lost his sanity. So he didn't rush out to share the news of the apocalypse with the world. He waited four years to write his predictions down. In 1822, the 40-year-old drafted a 20-point statement of his beliefs. Most of them aligned with traditional Baptist theology, except for one. As the 15th point, William wrote, I believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ is near, even at the door, even within 21 years, on or before 1843. For the time being, William felt content just writing down his theory. He didn't want to seek out any publicity or attention for them. However, over time, his conscience began to nag at him. If he was correct, he had a duty to warn the rest of the world. Sinners should at least have the opportunity to repent before Jesus came down to judge them. But William still seemed too afraid. He knew that his warning wouldn't be a welcome message for many. He didn't want to be criticized or mocked. William had a good life as a successful farmer. In the 1820s, he also dabbled in local politics again. At various points, he served as the Lowhampton School trustee, the town supervisor, and justice of the peace. As an important enough local figure, William dined with the Revolutionary War hero, the Marquis de Lafayette, when the French aristocrat toured the United States in 1825. 43-year-old William wasn't necessarily the kind of man people would expect to start spouting off strange theories. He didn't want to have his good reputation marred by any controversy, so he stayed quiet, even as he became more certain that millions of souls were facing judgment. 
William grappled with guilt over his inaction for years. He later wrote, It was continually ringing in my ears, Go and tell the world of their danger. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. In 1826, he experienced a vivid dream in which he traveled an arduous path across a bleak landscape. There, various threats and terrors accosted him, but he fought them off. He kept going until he came upon a large house. When he went inside, he found a flight of stairs. He traveled up them until he reached a room filled with pure light, brighter than the sun. He felt overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence. He looked around and saw that many of his friends and neighbors had joined him. They were all in a state of bliss. William understood the dream to mean that he stood on the right path and that God would surely bless him if he kept to it. He also understood that his loved ones would receive the same blessing if they followed him on that same path. The dream assured William of his prophecy. While he still lacked the confidence to start spreading the message to the world, he did begin sharing his theories with a few close associates. In particular, he targeted relatives whose souls he feared for the most, like his younger sister Anna and her husband Joseph. In 1831, William wrote a striking letter to her after learning that she and her husband, Joseph, had converted to Universalism. A belief within many Christian denominations, Universalism preached that God saved everyone because he loved his children too much to punish them with damnation. William apparently did not think highly of this faith because it ignored the biblical doctrine focused on repentance. If God saved everyone, William thought, it made atonement moot. In his view, damnation wasn't cruelty, it served justice. In his letter to Anna, William came right out and told them that they would be part of the wicked to be burnt up by Jesus' purifying fire during the apocalypse, unless they reconsidered their ways. Beyond his relatives, William also shared his beliefs with a few local pastors. He hoped that one of them might take up the message and spread it for him. For William, it would be much easier if someone else adopted his cause, relieving him of the burden of worrying about other people's souls. William figured that if God wanted him to go out and preach to the world, he would send him an unmistakable physical sign, one William couldn't ignore. William decided that if he should see such a sign, he would finally break his silence. Then, in the summer of 1831, William's nephew Irving supposedly dropped by with a request for the 49-year-old farmer. Irving lived 16 miles northwest in the town of Dresden, New York. Dresden had a small Baptist church. However, the isolated town didn't have a regular preacher. Irving had shared some of his uncle's biblical interpretations with the local community, and they were interested in hearing more. Irving wondered if William would consider coming to Dresden to deliver a lecture series on his theories. Now, William had no excuse to stay quiet. He realized that this must be the sign he'd waited for and accompanied his nephew back to Dresden. William spent a week with the congregation. His lectures were a success, and William developed an appetite for orating. He later said, As soon as I commenced speaking, all my diffidence and embarrassment were gone, and I felt impressed only with the greatness of the subject. With that, a new chapter of William's life began. He went from a simple farmer to a spiritual leader, preaching to anyone willing to listen. 
This shift began immediately. As soon as William came back from Dresden, a Baptist congregation in his wife's hometown of Poldney invited him to speak. Next came an invitation to Paulette, Vermont. More lectures followed. Hundreds showed up to hear a grave message. Miller told them, Soon, very soon, God will arise in his anchor, and the vine of the earth will be reaped. See, see, the angel with his sharp sickle is about to take the field. William's knack for poetry, which had entertained the friends of his youth, now served a much greater purpose. He wanted people to see what he saw, a vision of the world engulfed in fire. When William began preaching in 1831, his audience numbered in the hundreds. Perhaps a small handful of those truly embraced his message. But William still had time, about a dozen years left, to spread the word. He knew that he had to save as many souls as he could. He had to do whatever it took to convince the world that the end was nigh. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of William Miller's story. We'll discuss William's growing following as his date for the apocalypse approaches. For more information on William Miller, among the many sources we used, we found the book God's Strange Work by David L. Rowe, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.